What do state-mandated and paid family leave, universal child care, and single-payer health care systems have in common? The U.S. doesn't guarantee any of them, making us an outlier amongst all other rich countries. So where does that leave Americans? Well, most are seeking privatized individual solutions, trying to keep themselves afloat and get ahead with their ratty bootstraps in a world where there are a few glorious winners who strike it very rich while everyone else makes do with the leftovers. Bootstrap mentality has its limitations, and when we rely on individual success to navigate collective issues, we drive ourselves and our country further into the depths of inequality and debt. There is a lot going on here that makes it unnecessarily difficult for us to reach our full potential as humans, earning potential and otherwise, so let's get into it. Welcome back, rich girls and boys, to The Money with Katie Show. I'm your host, Katie Yaddy Tossan, and today we are diving into the American solution to pretty much everything pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. My guest today, Rebecca Walker, is the woman responsible for coining the term third wave feminism. Yeah. She writes a lot about feminism, gender, race, cultural power structures, and most recently in her book, Women Talk Money. I was thrilled that she agreed to sit down with me for this conversation. So this topic seemed like a natural one for the Money with Katie show. After all, I started blogging about money in 2018, driven by a genuine concern that none of my friends seemed all that interested in or informed about their financial choices. And after embracing fire rhetoric, I assumed it was my moral duty to spread the gospel of Brad and Jonathan. For the uninitiated, they are the hosts of Choose FI, a podcast about saving aggressively and retiring young. To all of my blissfully aware, vagina-possessing friends and colleagues. A few years ago, we started to conflate a woman who earns a lot of money with feminism. This is the classic mix-up wherein we assume because one exceptional individual has overcome barriers that affect the whole, they are somehow inspirational evidence that everyone can and should be doing the same thing, regardless of the fact that that's technically not even possible. Like, not everyone can be the CMO of a Fortune 100 company like Sheryl Sandberg. Technically, only 100 women can be. But I was fully gung-ho on the individual solution train because I hadn't yet learned enough about our country's political history or, frankly, the way other wealthy nations were run. At that point in time, I was 24. I had never traveled outside the United States, which is the case for 40% of Americans. I wrote a blog post earlier this week, we'll link it in the show notes, about how girl bossification or pink-washed capitalism or girl boss feminism, honestly, take your pick, compellingly positions individual female wealth acquisition as progressive, moral, and in some ways politically defiant. I have often encouraged women to relentlessly and unabashedly pursue wealth because it's not wrong to want to be rich. As someone who fully bought into the girl boss mentality for years, I now see the error in my ways. Turns out making myself magnificently rich and successful, still working on it, does very little to advance the position of all women or other marginalized groups. <laughs> Go figure. 
As Gia Tolentino muses in Trick Mirror, we ladies wanted policy and social change, like paid family leave and universal childcare. And instead, she says, we got girl boss rallies and pink desk plates that say CEO and fanny packs that say feminist as fuck for $49.99. And while I still stand by my original assertion that people, women especially, should not have to justify or apologize for their ambition, I can also recognize the complexity around doubling down on the cultural messaging we are already inculcated with, that one's utmost purpose in life should be ascending a ladder and making a shit ton of money doing it. That idea is not radical, and it doesn't really need to be reinforced any further. Now, before we dive into more, we will be right back after a message from the sponsors of today's episode. We often discuss things like the gender pay gap or the racial wealth gap as issues of individual failure, that women at an aggregate level choose jobs that pay less, or that black and brown people on the whole just don't work hard enough, or that parents of young children didn't plan for childcare expenses responsibly enough. We are very quick to point the finger at groups who express challenges, but we are not as quick to examine the policy-driven economic framework or larger cultural norms that these groups exist within. So let's talk about some of the policies that can actually start to improve things. The girl boss movement and the broader era of market-driven feminism that it symbolizes is our way of saying, hey, we just want the cultural support to pursue our careers and individual wealth accumulation as unashamedly and casually as men have for centuries without being told that we need to get back in the kitchen and push out another kid. And on the note of pushing out another kid, it's difficult to have these types of discussions, aka women's wealth accumulation, without them bleeding over into other issues like the lack of state-mandated and state-provided paid family leave and universal pre-K or childcare. And as we covered in the blog post linked in the description, those policy changes wouldn't be enough on their own to close the gender wealth gap. But they would go a pretty long way. How do we know they would go a long way? Because we have data from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, a group of 38 democracies that work toward equality and opportunity about the gender wage gap across countries. The gender wage gap is what you get when you compare the median earnings of men to the median earnings of women in a country. Now, some claim that it can be explained away by personal choice and preference, that women simply choose jobs that pay less, while others claim that women are accurately paid less because they are less productive or less valuable in the workforce than men are. And if you don't believe me that people actually think that, just get on Reddit or any Wall Street Journal comment section about the wage gap and you will see the justifications that I'm talking about. The U.S. stacks up pretty pitifully against other countries. 38 other countries have smaller gender wage gaps than the U.S., including several much smaller, much poorer countries like Slovenia, Bulgaria, Brazil, Chile. I could go on. Of course, the other predominantly white, predominantly rich countries like Finland, Sweden, Switzerland, France, Italy, the UK, Norway, again, I could go on, also have smaller wage gaps than the US. And what do all of these countries mentioned have in common? 
state-mandated paid family leave, and in many cases, some form of subsidized or universal childcare. Now, I know I'm implying a causal relationship here, and there are notable outliers wherein a country has paid family leave, but a higher-than-the-U.S. incidence of wage disparity between men and women, like Japan. Japan offers more than 60 weeks of paid family leave, that's 15 months, but the median Japanese woman makes 22% less than the median Japanese man. Like I said, these policies alone are not enough to compensate for deeply entrenched cultural norms. But generally speaking, I think it's safe to say there is an observable correlation between countries that offer paid family leave and universal childcare and more egalitarian compensation between men and women in the workforce. And as Pew Research finds, of 41 countries studied, the U.S. is the only country that lacks government-mandated paid family leave for new parents, aka we are the outlier. Recently, I saw my friend Trey Lockerbie, host of the Investors Podcast, tweeting his frustrations that daycare costs $2,000 a month where he lives, but pickup time is at 3 p.m. He lamented, how do working parents make this work? His frustrations are obviously valid. The U.S. is really the only wealthy nation that does not treat childcare as infrastructure. But one reply to the tweet caught my eye because it was just so quintessentially American. Why don't you raise your own kids? The reply tweet posed tauntingly. Maybe if you didn't pay someone else to do it, you wouldn't have this problem. Ah, let us count the ways in which this is problematic. First of all, the fact that this comment was levied at Trey, a man, is unusual. Usually, this level of vitriol and parent shaming is reserved for those damned women. So good on this asshole for his equitable approach to shaming others. Secondly, the idea that every person with young children could simply quit their jobs and raise the kids themselves is both asinine on an individual level because last I checked, people need income to survive, and at an aggregate economic level. Many Americans don't even have the option to have one stay-at-home parent because a single income is often not high enough to support three or more people. Almost 7 million households in the U.S. have children between ages 3 and 5 as of 2021. Assuming all of these households include working adults, that means this reply guy is suggesting a full 5% of the 133 million working Americans should just exit stage left en masse. I don't think you have to have a PhD in economics to see why that would be disastrous. It reminds me of the similarly shamey, equally ignorant sentiment that you sometimes hear tossed around. Well, you chose to have kids. You shouldn't have had kids if you wanted to fill in the blank, have a career, have extra income, have any number of things that parents in many other parts of the world are allowed, encouraged, and expected to have. It's an example of how we Americans tend to make societal needs an individual responsibility. And if we want doctors, accountants, and restaurants 30 years from now, people kind of need to continue having children. You can expand this to healthcare and higher ed, too. If you want people to be healthy and educated enough to work, to participate in the labor force, they need reasonable access to these things. 
This attitude that it's your problem to find someone to watch your kid while you go to work all day so you can provide for said kid, your future tiny laborer for the U.S. economy, is uniquely American. Can we please not bootstrap childcare? Humans need help. Humans need community. Humans need structural support systems. We have evolved to participate in and cooperate within supportive, mutually beneficial groups. But in many ways, everything about the American cultural and economic situation suggests that we should be able to do the opposite, solve for all of these matters privately and individually. The point is, it's difficult to talk about one problem, like gender wealth disparity, without talking about things like paid family leave and childcare, because these issues do not exist in a vacuum. So why do we want to believe and lean into individual solutions? Why are you likely to be called a lazy and entitled socialist cupcake if you mention you think the state should provide some of these things for its populace? I think we all want on some level to lean into the reasonable enough sounding advice that you should be able to do it all on your own. Why? Because it makes us feel on some sick, twisted, dark level like we are in control, that we only have ourselves to thank or to blame. But think about all the things that we have just patently accepted as not our responsibility. We don't have free market fire departments. We don't have free market sanitation departments, highway systems. There's no late capitalist solution for when your house catches fire. Though, can you imagine? Only the rich people get to have their homes extinguished when they catch fire. Honestly, I'm, I'm kind of afraid to even say that out loud because I feel like it's going to give someone an idea for a startup to disrupt public services. Put it in a subscription model app. I'm kidding, please don't. But when our fire alarms started going off one night and we couldn't figure out why, we called 911. The fire department arrived in five minutes. They quickly diagnosed the problem for free, fixed it, and went on their merry way. No deductibles, no monthly premiums, no haggling with the billing department. It was a pleasant, seamless experience of local government gone right. My tax dollars at work. Now, contrast that with a recent experience attempting to schedule a female wellness exam with an OBGYN. Last year when I visited the gyno, I had a different employer, which meant different health insurance. Now, in many other wealthy nations with a single-payer healthcare model, switching employers would have no bearing on which doctors I could see or how much I would have to pay. But I don't live in other countries. I live in the United States. So I opened my handy-dandy, cutting-edge private insurance app, and I searched for an in-network gynecologist near me. And I'm sure you, uh, you know what happened next. The first nine, yes, nine numbers listed for in-network doctors were out of service or disconnected. By the time I was finally able to reach one, I was informed there was a two-month waiting list to get in, and that my first appointment, quote-unquote, couldn't be a wellness exam, that I would actually have to come in for my first appointment two months away for, quote, data collection for insurance purposes, and then I would need to schedule a follow-up to, you know, actually see a doctor. But sure, tell me again how fast and efficient and wonderful our dystopian, for-profit, privatized healthcare system is in the U.S., how much faster it is. The free market is not the best way to provide necessary public services, and some problems should not be solved for on an individual level. What if they decided it's on you to figure out how to get clean water, 
how to dispose of your trash. The state's presence in our everyday lives, when it works, is so seamless and so unobtrusive that it is nearly unnoticeable. We just take it for granted that our trash will disappear if we put it on the curb, and that our waste will be flushed away, and that clean water will come out of the tap unless you live in Jackson, Mississippi, or Flint, Michigan, where they decided, screw those poor communities, let them figure it out. Sure, we pay for these things with our taxes or through public utilities and services, but they are largely subsidized and orchestrated by state and local governments. Now, that's not to say corruption doesn't happen or that there aren't bad actors or failed government programs. There absolutely are. But the point is that the things we deem individual responsibility are culturally influenced and, importantly, politically strategic. Some solutions should not be dictated by how much money you have or who you work for. I will die on this hill. And rugged American individualism as the answer to our collective problems is making me crazy. We are bootstrapping ourselves to the point of collective failure in the name of radical self-reliance. And remember that wage gap that we talked about? It turns out there's even more of an egregious male-mother divide. As an article in Crosscut points out, it's not that the U.S. cannot afford to solve these problems at the collective level. It's not because of money that we don't have universal childcare or paid family leave. It's because of ideology, the lingering myth that women belong in the home and that men should be breadwinners and that women should be homemakers. And yes, we are using the word myth intentionally. In the book, The Way We Never Were, well, I'll just read you the description. Quote, Leave it to Beaver was not a documentary. A man's home has never been his castle. The male breadwinner marriage is the least traditional family in history, and rape and sexual assault were far higher in the 1970s than they are today. In The Way We Never Were, acclaimed historian Stephanie Koontz examines two centuries of the American family sweeping away misconceptions about the past that cloud current debates about domestic life. The 1950s do not present a workable model of how to conduct our personal lives today, Koontz argues, and neither does any other era from our cultural past. End quote. In many ways, when we argue about returning to this idealized time, we're arguing for a reality that never really existed. The ideology tells us, of course, that things like childcare are a private family matter to be privately funded by said family and usually performed by the family's maternal parent. Joy Borkholder writes in Crosscut, the result of that stance deeply affects the economic opportunities available to women and the care available for their children. It turns out, for instance, that the gender pay gap in this country is largely a motherhood pay gap. Of course, it is not all on the state. It cannot all be solved with policy change. There is compelling evidence, we'll get to that shortly, that suggests that women don't talk about salaries and don't push back on these norms. And when individuals or corporations deny these norms even exist, it directly contributes to the fact that women earn less, invest less, and end up with smaller retirement accounts than their male counterparts. Our guest, Rebecca Walker, has some interesting insights into these thorny topics. We'll be right back after a message from the sponsors of today's episode. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. I am now pleased to welcome Rebecca Walker to the show. Her writing focuses on race, gender, politics, power, and culture. And she recently released an anthology of essays called Women Talk Money that I've been reading for a few weeks. Now, these qualifications alone would have made me more than interested in bringing her on the show. But what really got me was backlash to another interview that she did on one of my favorite finance podcasts, Rational Reminder. So Rational Reminder is this super technical academic show by these two delightfully nerdy Canadian wealth managers, and they have episode titles like effective equity duration and an interdisciplinary approach to understanding cryptocurrency. So like if the money with Katie's show is SpongeBob SquarePants, Rational Reminder is William Fancyson. So their audience does skew pretty heavily male. And while I, one of their seven female listeners, found the episode with Rebecca to be very interesting and insightful, it turns out that their hordes of male followers, some of them, were outraged that they would invite a woman, gasp, on the show to discuss gender differences and financial outcomes. So we're going to play a clip. Listen to this. We knew it was a different episode. We knew it was a different type of guest, all that kind of stuff. It was the most controversial episode, and I have specific measurements for that, that we've released so far. And I'm measuring controversiality, I don't know if that, that's the right word, how controversial it was by the comments, the sharp division in the comments, both on YouTube and in the Rational Minder community. It was literally, like, like I said earlier, there was comments saying this was the best episode ever and I got my wife to listen to the whole thing. And there were comments saying not very nice things. <laughs> Lisa really enjoyed it. But there you go. And then also measured by likes and dislikes on YouTube. So you can't see it in the public facing video, but in our back end, you can see the ratio of likes versus dislikes. And this was by far the, both on CSI and Rational Reminder, it was by far the most controversial from that perspective video that we've ever done, which is interesting because it, none of it seemed overly controversial to me. Now, I do think it's an important topic. So we just wanted to address some of the feedback that we got. A common comment was that Rebecca didn't have evidence to back up her claims. So I, I thought we would talk a little bit about some of the data that's related to some of the stuff that she talked about. Now, Ben and Cameron go on to explain how there are actually ample studies that confirm the ideas Rebecca raised in the initial interview, namely the fact that all around the world, even in countries like Finland, where the culture is a little more egalitarian, there is a meaningful gap in financial literacy between men and women. It persists across different countries, financial topics, income levels, and age groups. No matter how you slice the data, this gap seems to exist at the aggregate and there's a further gap when we introduce any sort of intersectionality. So, for example, being a black woman. So, Rebecca, I found this backlash fascinating and infuriating um, that we accuse calling attention to something like this being politically motivated. Um, the word political literally means relating to the governing or public affairs of a country. So, sure, in that respect, it is political because we are referring to the experience of parts of our populace, but I did not get the sense from this rage that people are using the word political in that way. They're using it like it's a four-letter word, like it's code for 
you and your liberal agenda introducing problems where they don't really exist. Like, this isn't even real. So I gave Ben and Cameron a lot of credit for devoting a couple follow-up episodes to pushing back on the controversy and confirming that, no, in fact, there is empirical data to support everything Rebecca said. So what gives? Like, why are there, for example, 1,500 comments on a Wall Street Journal article about the wage gap lambasting the publication for pushing this agenda, or worse, justifying the gap by claiming women are just less productive and valuable in the workforce. Why does this topic make people read, typically white men, so angry? People are angry. I mean, that's, you know, anger is a real problem in our world, as we can see from what's happening all over every day, every minute. Fundamentally, we're dealing with with anger at a very um, deep level. And anger coming out of profound frustration and pain and discontent and fear and um, a sense of not having enough, um, never having enough. Uh, you know, I think a lot of human beings right now are really, you know, expressing their existential anxiety about where we are as a, as a species through anger. And so I think fundamentally we're dealing with an anger issue, <laughs> you know, because we've lost this. We're, we haven't lost it, but we're, we're at a moment when people need more than ever to stay calm so that they can have reasonable conversations that can actually get us out of this terrible crisis that humanity seems to be in. And yet it seems that people do not have the tools they need to calm down and listen, you know. And, and invest in solving problems as opposed to creating more problems with vitriol and anger and upset. So fundamentally, I think this is an anger problem. <laughs> and, and fundamentally under that, I think it's a problem, you know, that's fear-based and people just really not knowing what's going to happen. So sadly, historically, when we've got fear, you know, about survival and greed, you know, that, that revolves around this need for survival and fear that they won't survive. Then we get greed and hoarding because of this need to make sure people are going to survive. And then if anybody challenges what has been hoarded and what has been, you know, extracted out of communities, out of the earth, out of, you know, everything, and they've got it, they are very upset if people bring a critique around how they got it, you know, when they got it, who doesn't have it, the repercussions of them taking it. That totally makes sense. I get it. You know, I mean, I think we all struggle with that. You know, each and every one of us struggle with feelings around, you know, what, what we have, what we've worked for, you know, what we've managed to cobble together. When when people come and and you know criticize what what we have or say that we have gotten it in ways that are untoward, we naturally first get upset, but then hopefully you know your next thought after you're upset and scared someone's going to take it from you is to reflect on that and to think, well, how did I get this, and what are the implications of what I have? You know, what's underneath this? How how did I get it, and and how did it affect other people? And then you start to make systemic changes. It starts, you know, in your own life. How can you stop yourself from hoarding, stop yourself from feeling this terror and realize that 
if you can't find a more equitable way to live, even in your own personal life, in your own community, then this existential anxiety will never go away because the people around you will suffer and be Mm -hmm. suffering and will always be looking at you (laughs) in this critical way. So, you know, I think deeper reflection is needed and accountability Um, people taking accountability for their own actions and the actions of of people who've come before them is critical. I read recently in Dorothy Brown's book, The Whiteness of Wealth, she said something that really jumped out at me. So I want to adapt it for the conversation that we're having now. You can believe that there's some extrinsic factor or factors that cause women to have lower earnings and lower levels of financial literacy, social, cultural stereotypes or expectations that cause them to work less or take lower paying work so they can do other things in the home or that there's something intrinsic about women that just makes them bad with money or inferior earners or not hard enough workers and that you know women just choose jobs that pay less because we want to and we want to work less because we're just lazier we're bad with money we're not very smart that it's kind of our fault so to borrow dorothy's language you know if you believe it's extrinsic then it is something that we can change it's systemic if you believe it's intrinsic then that is sexism so i'm i'm kind of at a loss though for how we get through to the people who believe the latter especially when some of those people are the ones that are making our laws and thereby kind of shaping our culture. What is your perspective on that? My, my perspective is that it's a real problem. <laughs> I mean, obviously we vote them out. You know, we have to continue to use the mechanisms that are at our disposal. This is a problem of ignorance and arrogance and hubris and people not wanting to put the time into actually studying the culture, (laughs) you know, studying the economics. You know, there are, you know, there are dozens of brilliant economists who have, you know, the credentials, you know, out the door. And if, who who are talking about this, this is not rocket science. This is not some kind of magical thinking that, that I've just come up with or women and people of color and all of us who've been marginalized within financial systems for hundreds of years. We didn't just come up with this and we're not talking about it baselessly. Um, so obviously, you know, voting is very important and education is very important. Um, and I think that's why we're seeing so many of the people who hold these beliefs, um, attacking our educational system and making, you know, banning books and restricting the kinds of information people have access to. This is why in totalitarian authoritarian regimes, they have completely shut down parts of the internet so people cannot have access to information. So the the control of information is really at the core of this. People who don't understand because they have not been really educated, (laughs) you know, I mean, our culture is in an educational crisis. You know, I was thinking about my son, actually, and how at his school, which is an, you know, an excellent school in, in many ways, you know, they don't study economics until junior year, right? And many, many kids, young people in our country don't study it ever, <laughs> you know? So so forget about, you know, all of the things they need to understand about our history in terms of race and class and gender and sexual orientation and the human psyche, you know, forget about those basic things. But 
But economics, you know, how this system works at a very basic level, they are not being taught, just like they're not being taught really about government and how our government works. And so people are less likely to be able to meaningfully participate in these conversations because they, they literally do not have the skills. They do not have the information. You know, they may have one little bit of the information, but they don't have the whole picture, right? And so, so many of us who are bringing up the issues that we bring up about, you know, racial inequality and, and gender inequality and all of the different ways that we are, are disallowed from having the information and access we need to be prosperous and to fulfill our vision of the American dream. We often have studied everything they've studied because we've had to, if, if we were allowed to do that, that's what we were taught. And then we've, we've studied even more because then we've had to come up with, you know, wait a minute, if this is true, then why are we all still struggling? So we have to come up with some, somebody's got to have written about that. What I know is limited. And I think that I am very open to having meaningful conversations with people who want to learn as I do, because the only way that we can work through this is for us to be as well-informed as possible so that we can come up with some good solutions. But you have to care about solutions. You have to care about people. In addition to anger and ignorance, there is a real lack of, of empathy and, and caring. You know, you have to really want things to be better. You have to look out and see people suffering and think, you know, I, I want to understand this so I can change this. I want to, to help people. I want, I want people to be well. I want this to be different. So you have to care. So part of it is that a lot of people are having a crisis of caring, you know, that their, their, their empathy is, is really compromised. And part of that is just being so desensitized because there is so much suffering in the world. Well, I think there's an element of it that I saw in the, the Wall Street Journal comments section that I referred earlier, which is, it's like we see someone that's in a, in a worse position and we think, well, they must have done something wrong to end up there. They must have made some decision or there must be something wrong with them if they're in that position. Because I'm not in that position. I clearly did something right. And I think that that's kind of where the the deeper level of kind of curiosity and questioning and empathy has to come from of like, well, maybe if we if we observe these patterns at an aggregate level uh, across genders or across races, maybe it's not that th these are individual decisions that are fully to blame here. Like there's probably something else going on. And there were a couple papers published by Penn researchers that found High levels of financial literacy, surprise, surprise, lead to more intentional planning for the future, which results in statistically significant improved financial outcomes. And one of these papers went as far as to say that up to 40% of wealth inequality in retirement among the cohorts studied could be attributed back to differences in financial literacy. So I think that's interesting because more research that kind of piggybacked on that found that families with a financially sophisticated husband are more likely to participate in the stock market than families with a wife of equal financial sophistication. So the paper from the Journal of Finance chalked it up to, 
Well, we have these like gender identity norms, which constrain a woman's influence over intra-household financial decision-making, that gender roles are incredibly pervasive, both societally, but also like in that nuclear family individual level that stereotypically the woman tends to manage the bills, the day-to-day budget, while the man is typically managing like the grander task of long-term wealth accumulation and strategy. And I just think it highlights like our relationships with money as women do not exist in a vacuum. Like they exist within this broader cultural context and familial expectations for what it means to be a good woman. I'm curious what you think about why challenging this stuff matters, um, how we kind of challenge it, especially when you still have sub-segments of society who either don't think it's real, that like these are imagined barriers, or that, oh, it's just the way it should be. The most important thing for women <laughs> to to educate ourselves and to become more and more comfortable talking about money, managing money, and realizing that it is it is completely within our purview. It is not rocket science. We should not be intimidated by it, um, and that it is a, a lever of power that is being wielded, you know, against us. And part of that process and and why I decided to do this book, Women Talk Money, is to really get in touch with your money story, to figure out as women what narrative we're holding about our money. And when you really start to get women's stories about about money, what they grew up learning, what what they've thought about it their whole lives, you start to see these kinds of institutionalized gender and racial inequality within the, the very story, right, that they tell. So... One of my favorite stories in uh, in Women Talk Money is by Latham Thomas, who, as a as a black woman, talks about her the story that she's holding about money, which is that when she was I think eight eight or nine, maybe ten years old, her mother, who was a real estate broker, went in to cash her commission check at a bank, and the teller did not believe that as a black woman she could possibly have gotten a twenty three thousand dollar check honestly and called the police and Latham's you know experiences that she saw her mother being handcuffed and brought dragged out of the the bank right by police because this teller did not believe that a black woman could have honestly made that money so just right there in that one story you start to understand and that is not an isolated event many many black women have stories like this this is part of our experience okay going into stores and and people not believing we can buy things, you know, for instance, not being taught about money, having been as slaves, currency ourselves, our very own bodies have been currency that we have no control over. And then another great story in the piece is by a a white woman, Mandy Catrone, who writes about the reason that she was able to make money is because every generation before her made sacrifices and had access to the ability to make money themselves. So her great-great-grandmother, as a white woman, was able to get a job and, you know, a good job, a decent job, and save money so that her daughter had a better start. And then her daughter then had a better start. And then Mandy was able to go to graduate school and then have her own access to money. Now, that's a story about generational wealth, which white people in this country have been able to build for 400 years, at least. We talk about the first slaves coming in 1619. 
And we just have not, as Black people, had that kind of generational opportunity and access. So even in these stories, we have a story about an immigrant woman, you know, first-generation Chinese-American who talks about what her mother taught her about scarcity and about fear and about debt and about, you know, all of the different things that shaped her narrative around money. So each of us is holding a story around money. And and I think it's up to every woman to really excavate that story, figure out how to rewrite that story in a way that is empowering. So, you know, Latham talks a lot about being uncomfortable in banks. And she's got to, and she does in her in her piece, work through that because as a, as a businesswoman, right, she's got to figure out how to get over that fear so that she can build wealth that can help herself, her family, and her community. So, so I think it's important for, for every woman to think about what we're, what we're holding and then, and then educate ourselves. I think we live in a great moment in terms of the information that is available to us, but we've got to strip away these, our feelings of, of, you know, not smart enough, you know, not savvy enough, like, oh, you know, the men do that. It's the men's space that, you know, money and economics, that's too hard. I remember somebody telling me when I was quite young, you know, you're not good at math, so just forget about it. You know, and to me, that was like, and I held that idea for a long time. And somehow I translated that into, oh, I'm not good at math. I must not be good at managing money, right? Because math and money, go together. (laughs) So I had to really let go of that idea and say, you know what, actually, I'm very good at math. And even if I'm not very good at math, I can still understand how to budget, invest, plan for my future. You've touched on something about kind of like the individual education and and, uh, self-awareness and kind of excavation of stories here. And I do think that that does tend to come up um, quite a bit with you know, in order to reverse these decades of millennia of oppression or of marginalization that like you have that kind of quippy girl boss answer of not you specifically, but like there is that girl boss, like, well, just work harder, like just lean in, like just you be so good that you prove they have to listen to you. And I think that that's flawed as well to take that to the extreme of like, well, it's on you as the individual. There's a larger thing happening here. And you had mentioned in your book that women's domestic labor specifically is still undervalued to the tune of $11 trillion a year and that the wealth of 22 men in the world is equal to or surpasses the wealth of all African women And like this mass exodus of women from the workforce during the COVID pandemic because of the childcare challenges is set to reverse a decade of progress toward global gender equity. I kind of want to hear you talk about how you think about these solutions and how maybe this this answer that we sometimes give women of like, well, you just be, you know, you just go be so smart and hardworking and talented and educated and amazing that like they have no choice but to pay you equally. That's not really going to do the job. I mean, we clearly need systemic changes, you know, beyond education and self-reflection. You know, there are a lot of, of, of very smart people who are working on these issues. And I think, you know, one of the, the places I'm a little upset about what's, what just happened in Sweden, and I know we all always talk about Sweden as this idyllic place, but it, it's a very challenging place, but it does have some good things happening. And I've spent a lot of time there. I have some wonderful 
readers and, and supporters there. But what they have done is they have really thought about taking care of their population from birth to death, you know, financially, you know, so that, you know, and we're not talking about like some welfare state that's going to make people, you know, infantilize them and they're never going to work. I mean, if you go to Sweden, everybody's working really hard and creating all kinds of fabulous stuff. (laughs) So it's not like, you know, they, you know, so anyway, so basic things like family leave, right? So when you have a child, you know, People get like six plus months, months in, in, in sweet. Right. I, but, but the point being, there is a sense of in the beginning, parents are able to to get the kind of economic support they need to help their children. There is access to affordable, if not free child care and health care. And then there is, you know, a stipend that parents are given per child because there's an understanding that the labor of raising the next generation is labor. I mean, when I think about my parenting Mm -hmm. right now, I am basically creating the workforce of the future. I am actually growing the actual materia that is going to keep this economy, this whole entire system going. And yet I am not being remunerated for any of it. So, So Sweden really gets that, you know? And so... There is an understanding that the work that we're doing as parents needs to be compensated. Um, so that's another way that that can be handled. And then people are are supported in, in these different ways throughout their lives so that there is a, a great um, equalizing. That's not to say there isn't wealth disparities in Scandinavian countries. There are, but they're much less extreme and people are, you know, on the whole, not as concerned with, you know, where am I going to sleep tonight? What am I going to eat, you know, today? What's going to happen to me when I'm 50? How am I 60, 70, 80? How am I going to handle, you know, becoming ill? What am I going to do with my children? I mean, you know, here in our country, you know, we are so far behind in in these kinds of systemic um, changes. I mean, we had to lose pre-K, we had to lose child care. We had to lose extended family leave in, in this last go-round with Biden's proposed bill. You know, these are the kinds of conversations we need to be having in addition to this narrative of you just go out there and make it happen yourself, because that's not going to work without the supports in place to actually make that reality. And you can't look at any group in this country that just did it on their own. I mean, this country is built on the backs of of slaves. So the idea that anybody could build anything and create anything without a whole lot of support of of some kind is a complete delusion. And, And again, we're going back to ignorance and a real resistance to understanding history. So, so nobody in America really has pulled themselves up from their bootstraps. We've all had to work hard in different ways. And some of us have had, more access and privilege than others. And those things need to be acknowledged so that more people can have more access and we can try to make this country better. (laughs) Yeah, I preach. The way that I think about Scandinavia, and I mean, I would say like a lot of Europe in general, is just that your floor is so much higher. If you are poor in America, you are in the basement compared to what poor in another one of these countries 
would be like. Absolutely. I think it's a little dystopian and I think it's been a very disillusioning experience for me as an adult to really understand just how different the U.S. is from a lot of these other very, very wealthy nations that do consider a social safety net. Exactly. Because what are they going to, who are they going to hire if we don't do this work? Who's going to create the next business? Who's going to create the next engine for this economy if us parents are, are not doing it? You know, we are, cre- it's the raw material. Yeah. And it's infuriating to me. <laughs> Same. Um, well, especially because it tends to fall on women. Like, exactly. The parental considerations more often than not, it's like, it's on the individual woman to determine how that is going to play out, which means it typically impacts her. I mean, it's all connected, right? Like that's kind of the point is that. Yeah. And it's it's women and men. I mean, when you think about um, especially communities of color and poor communities, I mean, it's families, it's, it's women and men, you know, men who have been black men, you know, men of color, poor white men. I mean, Everybody's trying to to raise their family, you know, to support their family. Not everybody, but many, many people. <laughs> the gender gap is real, but I don't want to leave men out of this conversation because um, so many men um, who are not white men of a certain level of privilege are also kept out of the information stream, are also sidelined within this economy and this system and they too deserve more so yeah but i think what you're saying i you know i i wrote about this i think in baby love my my memoir about having a child but the experience for me of going to sweden the first time and seeing all of these mothers who looked completely happy, you know, <laughs> like they, I mean, this is like, I'm, I'm completely idealizing this situation, but, but I actually felt this. I was, I was standing, I'll never forget this. I was standing at the, um, was it the town hall right there on the, on the water in Stockholm? And I saw these women with their, with their strollers and they looked more relaxed than I've ever seen any mother look anywhere else really in the world. And they were way more relaxed than I ever was as a mother. And I got this hit of like, oh, this is like a completely different situation here. And I I literally started to cry because I, I was just struck by the difference. And I really think that so many Americans need to travel <laughs> Oh, you know, you know, and see that people are living in very different ways, you know, and it's not just the socially democratic societies and, and countries. It's, it's even very, very poor countries in India, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, you know, where, you know, there might not be a lot of financial wealth, but there's an entirely different way of relating within the community, within the family, you know, there's a way in which money is not playing the same sort of divisive role, or let's say there's more support, you know, communally than, than we have here, you know, where people are so separated from one another. And that's another element of a kind of economic struggle to be removed and separated from your family in the name of progress, in the name of modernity. 
you know, to, I have to go, you know, move to New York to get this job and to be successful. And then you leave your own personal safety social net, you know, your community. So there are a lot of ways to look at this. And I, I really invite anyone listening to, to open your mind and to as much exploration of these, of these different worlds and ideas as possible and really reflect on your own story of money and how you want to change it, whether you're comfortable with it, whether it serves you, whether it serves your family, what it, you know, don't be afraid to actually do the numbers, <laughs> the psychic numbers, the psychological numbers, the emotional numbers, and obviously the, the practical numbers. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. That was a great conversation. It was. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. The point of this episode is not that individual responsibility is not important or that hard work is not valuable. The point is merely that when we try to solve complex collective problems with individual exceptionalism, we create a recipe wherein quality of life for all but a very select few worsens over time. We can hold these two complex truths simultaneously, that sometimes the answer is working harder In other times, the answer is policy or interdependence or community. As Rebecca pointed out, emphasizing the former too strongly encourages hoarding behavior, which only exacerbates the problem. I have become increasingly cynical of the expectations placed on me to overcome these barriers personally. Everything from someone suggesting the answer isn't more egalitarian attitudes toward caretaking and policies that make it easier for both parents to have children and work, but women to just be more quote-unquote confident. To the healthcare administrator at the OBGYN office chastising me for not scheduling sooner than September if I wanted an appointment before November. More than anything, it's important to remember that your own individual wealth accumulation and experience of personal finance does not exist in a vacuum. It exists within the context of the economic policy decisions and cultural norms of your time. You can work on your metaphoric swimming and freestyle upstream for as long as you've got energy to do so, but the strength of the current is outside your control. All right, everybody, let's dig into another Rich Girl Roundup. As a reminder, we will take listener questions every month. I'll put a call out for questions on Instagram. Follow Money with Katie if you're not already. And we will pick one that feels interesting and widely applicable and answer it. As my standard disclaimer, I'm not a licensed financial professional. This is not financial advice. This is what would Katie do? This week's question is from Gavin. I'm buying a house, 31 years old, looking to retire in 15 years. Hell yeah, Gavin, you go. Should I get a 15-year mortgage or a 30-year mortgage and invest the difference between the 15, 30-year price? Advice, question mark? All right, Gavin, if you had asked me this 12 months ago, I would have said, dude, money is so cheap right now. You would be crazy to get a 15-year term when you get a sub 3% 30-year fixed rate mortgage. But... That's not really the case anymore, so I do want to raise a couple of considerations for you. Number one, do you think it is the house that you would want to stay retired in? In other words, would paying it off before you retire create a situation wherein you would only be paying property taxes, insurance, maintenance, etc., but you would no longer have a mortgage payment like ever again? You would not have to support a substantial housing payment ever again. If that is the case, 
I could see this 15-year being attractive because it lines up so nicely with your retirement plan. And if you have the cash flow right now to support the higher monthly payments and you would like to live in this house permanently or semi-permanently, it might make sense. Plus, you'll save money and interest. That brings me to my next point. With six plus percent rates, the allure of pay over 30 years and invest the cost difference in payment diminishes a little bit. If you assume we're going to see 7% average real returns in the market over the next 30 years, like we have over the last 30, then we're looking at a slight edge to investing, but very slight, right? It's also possible we will have lower returns moving forward and it would be pretty neck and neck or worse, your interest accumulates faster than your investments. Of course, it could always be higher, but we just don't know. So we have to use these interest rates to help us decide. If it were me and I knew, A, that my retirement was 15 years away, B, I had the cash flow every month to comfortably afford the higher payments, and C, I knew that my rate was going to be higher than 6%, I would probably really consider that 15-year, again, if it were me. Of course, you can always change your mind later, like if rates drop or you decide, oh, actually, I don't want to pay this thing off that quickly, you can always refinance and change your mind. But you will have to rerun all the numbers and new totals with that updated timeline. All right, y'all, that is all for this week. I will see you next week, same time, same place on The Money with Katie Show. Our show is a production of Morning Brew and is produced by Hannah Velez and me, Katie Gaddy Tossan, with our audio engineering and sound design from the talented Nick Torres. Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia, and additional fact-checking comes from the lovely Kate Brandt. Sam Cat is our VP of Chaos, and Beans is our Chief Bark Officer. Bark Officer.